It is wonderful to be back. I mean, it was wonderful to catch up with some rest, but man, uh, I say this stuff, and I don't know if it really sinks in, but you guys have no idea how much you mean to me, how great of a privilege I consider it that I get to, to be a part of anything the Lord is doing in your life, and so I am exceedingly grateful that you allow me to continue to serve you and to serve God in this way. I want to I add one other thing. Uh, I wish I would have said this in the first service because it was on my mind and then between going from that side of the room and getting up here it escaped me but and I'm not trying to discourage anybody that's watching online there is an enormous difference because I did it for three weeks watching online watching online is a wonderful experience uh, Pete has just upgraded that to the point that it's wonderful however it does not compare to <laughs> It doesn't compare to being in this room. You know, Jesus said where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I'm in the midst. The, <laughs> the pre- the pre- <laughs> Thank you. The presence of God is, is just so palpable. This, this worship team that we have, uh, I, I don't know if any of you get a sense of what a unique blessing we have. This is, this is special, folks. It really is. And uh, anyway... Uh, I'll stop there because I'll blabber on and on. Okay, so to introduce this series, and of course, you know, Kim, Pete have already said a little bit about it. It's, it's going to deal with the book of James. But, but let me just kind of trigger your thought life a little bit with this. Life is hard. I think we can all agree to that to some extent. Then you die. <laughs> <laughs> then they throw dirt in your face. <laughs> then the worms eat you. Be grateful it happens in that order. (laughs) Uh, Now, there are people that are without God, without hope, that knowingly or unknowingly, this this is their life. This is as good as it gets. But what I want to do is start you with a slightly, not radically different, but a slightly different thought, and it's this. Sometimes life can seem hard, but it's not necessarily because you're doing something, what is the word? Wrong. It may be because you're doing something right. This series that we're going to take in the book of James, and I urge you, uh, take advantage of this. For six weeks, we're going to be in the book of James. It won't go word for word, but it'll be pretty close to it. But read the book of James for yourself. If you read it over and over and over, it will be more meaningful to you. But James is writing to a group of Christ followers who are going through difficulties, going through hard times, not because they've done anything wrong, but because what they've done right. Sometimes we Christians unknowingly present the message of Christ to people with the feel that if you put your trust in Christ and become his follower, man, everything is going to work out in your life. You know, the ball is always going to bounce in your behalf. The boss is going to love you. The dog's always going to love you. Your wife, your spouse, your husband's going to, you know, everything's going to work wonderful. Jesus is going to make everything perfect all the time. But frankly, that just isn't, that isn't what Christ himself wanted his followers to understand about the nature of life and particularly the nature of life of being one of his followers. So we're in this book of James. And and let me just tell you a little bit about James. James is unique in that he is the half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine what growing up in that household was like? You're the sinful guy. You're an everyday, ordinary, sinful guy, James, and you're living with Mr. Perfect over there, you know. Now, here's why I say that. The Scripture records James 
James was not a follower of Jesus. He did not receive Jesus as being the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world while Jesus was alive. James was converted because of the visible resurrection evidence of his half-brother rising from the dead. That stopped him. That converted him. James is a powerful incentive for us to know the validity, the factual basis of the New Testament message that we have. So James is converted, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, as he sees the resurrected Christ. Now James is writing the the background of the book of James. James is writing to a group of people that had become followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. Now everything had gone really good for a while in Jerusalem. They start out on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 41, it says that that 3,000 people all at once put their trust in Christ and became his followers. So they went from 120 to 3,120 within just 50 days of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Then time goes on, and you read in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says that by that time, which was only a year or two after the resurrection of Christ, it says there were 5,000 men who were followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand, when you're talking 5,000 men, you're probably talking wives and kids. They had large families in those days. So there could have been 15,000 20,000 or more followers of Christ within about a four-year framework. So the church in Jerusalem was growing by leaps and bounds. Jerusalem was a city that only averaged about 50,000 people. So all at once, this Christian community is exploding with growth, but then everything comes to a screeching halt. It says in Acts chapter 7, and you read it on your own sometime, that one particular follower of Christ, a guy named Stephen, he starts debating with the religious leaders, trying to prove to them from their own scripture that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. The argument gets so heated that these religious leaders, they take up stones and they kill this young man called Stephen. At that point, the scripture changes. It says in Acts 8.1 and Acts 8.4 that great persecution broke out in the church in Jerusalem and it says that those that were the followers of Christ they ran for their lives they scattered all over the world chapter 8 in Acts verse 4 though says this it says everywhere everywhere that they went they proclaimed the message of Christ everywhere they went now mind you they just had to flee homes businesses families friends because they were being persecuted for being followers of Christ but instead of being silenced by the persecution they literally became louder they literally spread the message wider James is writing to these individuals that have been scattered when the book of James is written and by the way the book of James even though it's toward the end of our New Testament in the general epistles it's really the probably the very first uh, epistle which means letter that was ever written in the New Testament it was written around 45 AD which is about 15 years after the resurrection of Christ now James is writing to people that 11 years earlier were scattered all over because of the persecution that broke out over the martyrdom of Stephen and of course Saul of Tarsus persecution of followers of Christ so this is the background you have to know the background to the people that he's writing to. He's writing to Jews who were Christians, followers of Christ, that had to flee. They, they were dislocated people. We would call them refugees today. They, they were disoriented, most likely. They had, again, I'm going to re, re, rephrase what I said before. They likely lost family members because families were being split. Some were followers of Jesus as the Christ, some were not. They lost friendships, no doubt, over this. They lost businesses. They lost homes. These people were just fleeing for their lives because of this allegiance to Christ and yet everywhere they went 
They refused to be silent. They couldn't keep silent. Once you know the truth, you just can't keep it to yourself. So this is the background. James is writing to these individuals. It's now, you know, about 11 years since the persecution. He's no doubt as a pastor. He was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And James probably went through quite an up and down because he saw explosive growth within just a few years, up to 15,000, 20,000 people. But then they all ran for their lives. And he probably saw a tremendous decline within a short period of time too. James, led by the Spirit of God, though, is that's who he's writing to, and he's going to touch on a lot of subjects. Today, we're going to talk about he's going to touch on the nature of trials. He's going to then talk to them about the, the place that the Word of God needs to stay in our lives, particularly during trials. He's going to talk to them about genuine and false faith. A person can say they have trust in Christ, but it's not genuine, it's not real. He's going to show the nature of authentic trust in Christ. He's going to talk to them then about uh, their words, about the, the kind of communication. Because when you get into a trial, when you get into hardship, you get under pressure, I mean, maybe you're different than me, but, but I'm not always, you know, able to speak as nicely as I can when things are going better. Sometimes we get a little tense, we get a little harsh, we get a little abrupt, and they were talking very, diff you know, differently to one another than what they did other times. He's going to then talk to them also about, ultimately, the second coming of Christ and, uh, and, and about the danger of, during these times of trials, being seduced by societal pleasures and power and prestige and all these kinds of things worldliness is what we call it in the christian community okay so he's going to cover all these things but he's covering them in the context of people that are undergoing pressure that are undergoing trials that are feeling disoriented feeling dislocated maybe discouraged maybe depressed because things are not going the way they want them to go in their life now i'm not going to do this but if, if i were to ask in here today can I just see a, I'm not doing this, so don't do it, please. <laughs> if I could just see a hands, you know, a raising of hands of those that things are not going the way you would like them to go in some sector of your life. And again, I, I said, don't, don't, you don't have to. Thank you, sir, but you, you, don't, you don't have to <laughs> tell me that. <laughs> because I know it's true of all of us on any given day, any given week, and so will it be until the day this journey is, is over. That's what we're going to find in Scripture. So let, let's, let's get right to our, our title today. We're going to look at the what and the why of trials, testings, and temptations. And there's a, there's a relationship. There's an intertwining of these. The trials are testings of our authentic trust and faith in Christ. And they can, though, these trials can bring temptations. We start looking for, for whatever will give us a little bit of relief and we opt out of the, the will of God as it's revealed in the word of God and the ways of God. All right, let's get right into the text. Here we go, James chapter one. Notice how he describes himself. This is a guy that, that didn't follow his half-brother as the Christ, the Messiah, when he was alive, but boy, he, he speaks differently now, having seen him risen from the dead. James, a servant, that word servant in the Greek is doulos, it means bond slave. He's saying, man, I'll do anything for God, but he doesn't say he'll just do anything for God. James, a servant of God and of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now he talks about his half-brother. He's my Lord and I'll do anything. I, I will serve him in any way that he desires in any way that I can. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to the 12 tribes, there were 12 tribes of Israel scattered, and that word scattered is interesting. In, in the Greek, it's diaspora, and it meant 
the way Jesus used it earlier in a parable, he said that the, the children of the kingdom, the followers of God, God scatters them like seed around the world, wanting our influence to Im- impact the areas where he scatters us. So this is kind of coded language for the Christian community. To the 12 tribes, these were Jewish Christians who had been scattered. James is letting them know, you may feel like you just ran for your life because of persecution. You may feel disoriented and dislocated, but God sees you as, as his seed and, and he scattered you out this way and he scattered you out that way. And everywhere they went, they kept proclaiming the truth about God and the truth about life. They were his scattered ones, his seed. Greetings, and now he gets to the text for today. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever, he doesn't say if ever, whenever, you face trials of what many kinds now if we just listen to that language it doesn't really make rational sense initially consider it joy when you face trials that is not typically a reaction when we face trials of many kind i mean there's 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 mental trials that are grueling there's emotional trials there's there's physical trials that can take you to a whole different place there's relational trials that can shake you to your core there are financial trials i mean we could just keep on adding this he says trials of many kind whatever kind of trial that you may have gone through or are going through it fits into this passage but what he says sounds outrageous he says to count it or consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters you followers of christ when you face trials of many kinds that is not our natural reaction when we face a trial we usually respond with sometimes fear sometimes panic sometimes irritation sometimes anger sometimes we may feel like you know God's not not showing up for us or he's not caring for us the way that we thought he would care for us we we may show lots of different reactions but joy is typically not one of them so he says consider it pure joy whenever he doesn't say if ever he says whenever so let's just pause and let's ask ourselves a question whatever kind of trial this is an uncomfortable circumstance something you and I don't desire something that's bringing us consternation not joy not pleasure whatever kind of trial is your reaction is my reaction that I'm going to count this joy typically honestly it's not but God who is here today his presence is manifest today he wants to change my mind your mind for the rest of our lives about this thing now I want to say something I said in the first service because it's probably critical that I say things like this more frequently here's the God's truth some of you today and and I'm not trying I'm not trying to be disrespectful or insulting by it's the last thing I want to do but I'm just being straight with you because I think it might provoke you to rethink some things some of you today you are only going to hear a man me speaking that's it just something you'll 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 shrug your shoulders and like eh, big deal at least didn't put me to sleep or maybe it did put me to sleep and that was a good thing you know but that you'll just hear a man that's all you're going to hear it's not going to change your life at all it's not going to change your mind at all but some of you here today you are going to hear God speak directly experientially to you you are actually going to encounter God and you're going to know it now what's the difference between those that just hear a man and those that hear God it's based on our condition as we come in here if you are here today and you say God I want so much to hear from you you can speak to me on any subject you want any way you want 
I just want to hear from you. You are my creator, and, and I want to encounter you. And I want to tell you something. You can encounter God when God's people are gathered in a way that we cannot encounter God on our own. He's saying, Randy, you can't encounter God alone. Of course you can, but there is a different level of intensity when God's people gather like this. If you come, if we come saying, God, I don't really care what, what it is you want to talk to me about, I just want to hear from you today. I, I don't want to hear anything or any, anybody else. I want to hear from you. You will absolutely hear from God every time you come with that kind of an attitude. Every time. But if you don't come with that kind of attitude, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful again or, or get you angry, you're just going to hear a man. You're just going to hear a talk. And it'll be like any other talk you've heard. It won't impact your life. So tuck that away as we get into this text so he says count up your joy when you face trials of many kinds well our mind immediately bolts to why why should I do that now we're going to spend a lot of time in the second part of the message getting into the why but I'm going to touch on it a little bit now as well so here we go because that's a big word count up your joy when you face trials of many kinds because that's the why why because you know that the testing of your faith, that is a Greek word, pistis, that Pete mentioned earlier. It means faith, trust, reliance, confidence. It is the idea of relationally, do I trust God as he's revealed himself in Christ or not? The testing of your faith, the testing of your trust produces perseverance. Perseverance is, is I stay under the circumstances and I stay faithful to God's will as it's revealed in his word and I do what he says to me to do in his word and I just endure whatever comes with my obedience to God. I stay under, I stay, I persevere. Your trust produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be, what is the word? Mature and complete. What, we need to what, 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 is, what, is, what does maturity look like? What, what is he talking about? What, what, does, what will I look like when I'm all grown up? Remember when you were a kid, you know, you always wonder, what, what are you going to be when you're all grown up? What does the scripture mean when it says maturity? Well, Ephesians 4.13, it tells us specifically. It says to be mature is to literally have all the perfection, the character perfection of Christ. You've you got you to hear what, what the Spirit of God's saying here. It's saying that right now, if you've put your trust in Christ and become his follower, you have a God-given capacity to grow and develop exponentially for the rest of your life to continue in any and every circumstance to become more and more or less and less, I might add, like Christ. But when I'm all grown up and mature, I'm going to be a Christ-like version of myself your distinct personality but a christ-like version of you that is meant to be the goal one of the chief goals in our existence during this journey we call, we call life that you'll be you may be mature and complete not lacking anything now he he gets into something about wisdom here he says if any of you lacks wisdom you should ask god who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you he goes on but when you ask you must believe, that's that Greek word pistis again, you must trust, you must have confidence, you must have reliance. You must trust and not doubt because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is, what does it say? Double-minded, unstable in all they do. Now, now, wait a minute, what is he talking about? It says first, ask God. When you're in the trial, ask God for wisdom and he'll give it to you. But then it says, but man, if you're double-minded, if you're unstable, in other words, 
if you're wishy-washy, if you've got one side of your leg on the fence and another side on the other side, don't, don't even bother asking God because he really can't lead you and guide you because you sometimes do your will and you sometimes do his will. You just do what's convenient. He's saying I, God can't lead or guide somebody. Like that. He can't help them. But when he's asking, when he says here we should ask for wisdom, he's not asking for wisdom as to the why of the trial. And that's what we tend to do. We say, why is this happening? God, you could have prevented this. You could have protected me. You could have provided better. Why, I, you know, I thought now that I was your child, you would stick up for me better than this. You got all the power in heaven and earth, and that you're letting this stuff happen to me. But that's not it, because James has already told us the why of the trial. It says so that the testing of our trust or faith would develop in perseverance, and perseverance would develop into character and maturity christ-like maturity so he's already told us the why the trial is a context it is a developmental context for the growth of our christ-like character so when he's saying ask for wisdom here it's the wisdom of what do you want me to do what should i do in this situation now lord i'm in this trial it's got me disoriented it's got me dislocated it's got me discouraged it's, it's got me confused what is your will show me give me clarity on what i'm supposed to do in this situation that's what he's talking about when he says asking for wisdom and he's saying but but god's not going to give wisdom unless you have already made up your mind i'm going to be obedient to god i'm going to be faithful to his word and his will in this situation i just need clarity i just need to know exactly what he wants me to do how he wants me to do it and god promises to us he'll give us wisdom He'll give us wisdom in that kind of a circumstance, but I have to have, again, a heart that's already in a completely trusting, obedient state. All right, so we're going to go a little deeper. The what of trials, testings, and temptations. Now, now again, we're not going to the why. The why is in the second part of the message. Just the what. I just want you to, to take in some truth concerning trials, testings, and temptations. Here we go. Jesus, the last night he was with his disciples, he was just hours away from going to the cross. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have, what is the word? Tribulation. That is an intense word. It's saying you're going to have a tough, rough ride. The circumstances are not always going to be those that you desire. They're not going to be those that you desire relationally, economically, mentally emotionally physically situationally circumstantially sociologically politically they're not going to be jesus is telling his people be forewarned and therefore be forearmed you're going to have tribulation in this world but take heart i have overcome the world so he's trying to get us to understand it's it's normative to have trials in this life even when we're being completely obedient to the word of God and the will of God when we're right in the center of his will this just sort of affirms it again in Acts chapter 14 listen to what the apostle Paul as he went about reaching people for Christ gathering them together in churches planting churches listen to what was kind of the typical thing he would tell the new converts the new followers of Christ strengthening the souls of disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith or trust, saying that through many, what is the word again? Tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul would tell people up front, hey, you've become a follower of Christ. 
It's true. God proclaims your sins are all forgiven. It's true. God proclaims he gives you the gift of everlasting life in his kingdom. It's true. The spirit of God now indwells you and will help you to grow and become who God intended you to always be and do what God always intended you to do. It's true. He'll never leave you or forsake you. It's true. He literally loves you to death. He proved it on the cross. Nobody will ever love you the way he loves you. But it's also true as his follower you must accept many tribulations. They're normative as followers of Christ. We have to, we have to accept that to, to be prepared for reality in life. 1 Peter 4 just emphasizes the same thing. 1 Peter 4 is really interesting, the book of 1 Peter, because when this book was written, Nero, the emperor of Rome, was just starting to persecute Christians. He had burned down Rome, and he needed somebody to blame it on. So, yeah, blame it on these dumb Christians. And so they were rounding, just starting to round up Christians, drag them into the arena, and if they wouldn't offer a sacrifice to the emperor, they would be killed in various creative ways that Nero came up with. So this is the context of what Peter, who Peter's writing to. He says, dear friends, don't be, what is the word? Surprised about the fiery trials and by the way Nero would take some Christians and literally turn them into torches in the arena it was one of the ways he killed Christians by the fiery trials that have come among you to do what to you test you keep that in mind one of the things we're going to see is that trials provide a context for the testing of the authenticity or lack thereof of our trust in Christ for the test, test you. These are not strange happenings. Notice again, he's just saying that this is normative. Expect this. These are not strange happenings. Instead, rejoice as you share Christ's suffering. Christ didn't do anything that he deserved suffering. And yet, even before he went to the cross, he was mocked, he was maligned, he was slandered. He's a glutton, he's a drunk. You know, they said all kinds of things. He's demon-possessed. They said all kinds of things. So we're just walking in the footsteps of our Savior. And you've probably known someone that has had something so painful, so unjust occur to them. You know, they, they maybe lost a business. Somebody stole their business away from them or their spouse abandoned them or cheated on them or something or, or any other number of things. And it just shakes them and they get angry at God and they say, I, I don't, I'm not going to have anything to do with you if this is the, the, all the good that you're going to do to me. It's because they don't read what God has already told us is realistic expectations we are to ex you got to hear this because some of you right I guarantee there's somebody in this room right now you're like, but Randy this is not fair well you you don't under you don't understand what I'm suffering right now it is completely unfair I don't deserve any of this I believe you but it's not realistic to think that you still won't suffer it Jesus did not deserve any suffering but he suffered as an example because we as his followers are told to expect to just get our minds braced for it that we're going to have trials and they're going to be unjust and some of them are going to shake our world. These people that, Peter, or that James was writing to, they had, had to run for their lives. They were living like refugees. They were dislocated. They were disoriented and not having an easy run in life. So Peter says, don't, don't be surprised. Let's draw some conclusions. First of all, this is where we need to start. 
And this is not bad news because Jesus predicted this so when we experience it, they can be faith-building, trust-building. Yep, it's just like you said, Lord, I'm having trials and they're unjust and they're, they're coming in all sorts of forms just like you said it's happening. Trials cannot be, can you say it out loud? Escape. Don't even try. I'm not saying run toward them, but I'm saying they can't be escaped. Let's go on. But they can be transformed to sources of joy. James said, you know, count it all joy when you're in trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and perseverance character, and, and that means Christ-like maturity. So James says there, there's good that can come out of these trials. It is a developmental context, and if you tuck that away in your mind, you'll be able to change that emotion, which initially is a negative reaction to a positive, joyful reaction. You're saying, I don't like what's happening, but I like what God says will happen in me through me to me if I stay faithful during this time to him that's the process let me go on we don't choose our trials they usually feel like a blind side they usually feel quite undeserved they, they, our, our gut reaction might be sometimes God I can't believe you're letting this thing happen to me why I've, I see no I see no sense in it you ever met, met somebody a Christ follower and they say I'm telling you, I'm struggling with this one, Randy. I can't see any sense in why God would let me go through this. You ever met somebody with, with that kind of thing? It's not uncommon. But it's because they're not taking Scripture seriously or not reading it. I, I don't know which. We don't choose our trials, but we do choose their impact on us. Trials can be destructive or what? Constructive. Count it all joy because it brings the testing of your faith and testing of your faith, perseverance, and perseverance, character, and so forth. They can be constructive if we stay faithful to God, obedient to God, or destructive because a lot of times when the trials come, we say, I'm out of here. This Christian stuff, it didn't do anything for me. In fact, it made my life harder. It made my life more complex. Uh, I, I was feeling like half the time I was not pleasing to God and then I was still getting my ears beaten down everywhere I looked. I'm out of here, which exposes that their so-called trust in Christ was not authentic. The trial became a context that exhibited what was really going on inside. Let's go on. Our trust in the Lord or lack thereof determines which whether the trial is destructive or constructive it's determined by us and it will be determined by our actual authentic trust in Christ or lack thereof which will be exposed by our disobedience and our distancing ourselves from God from his word from his will and so forth now we're going to go to the why side of this equation. We've looked at the what. These things are normative. They're meant to be constructive. Our trust or lack thereof will determine it. But we're going, to, we're going to emphasize a little bit the why. Why? The why of trials. We've already heard they're meant to be developmental. We're going to dig a little deeper in this. Let's go back to James again, chapter 1, verse 12. He picks up his conversation. He says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test. Here it is again, this testing that, per, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So James is saying if you stay faithful to Christ and obedient to the word of God while you're undergoing this trial, God will give you a crown of life. Now what does that mean? Some people say, well, that means, you know, at the day when Jesus rewards his people, you'll be given some kind of distinctive reward. That's 
possibly true, but I don't think that's what it's talking about. It's talking about an experiential reality. It's saying that when you and I go through trials and we go through one set and another and another and another and we keep on staying faithful to God through those, we stay obedient to the Word of God, something changes inside of us so that we have what I'm going to call spiritual climate control. When, when, when you look outside, and it's 90 degrees, most of us, you've got a fan or you've got an AC, you have something to change the climate inside your house. How, how many have something to change the climate inside your house? Maybe you just have one of these fans. I don't know, but you have something. And, and when it's wintertime and it's, you know, below zero or close to zero, your house is not below zero. No, 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 you have climate control. The crown of life he's talking about, when I go through one kind of trial and another and another, I become sort of a, an experienced person in life. I know how the Lord sustained me in one. I know how he sustained me in another. I learned now by experience how being obedient to him came out well. And so I start getting to be one that has interior spiritual climate control. In other words, what happens outside of me and to me cannot govern what goes on inside of me. I have the crown of life. I have the ability to control my inner world based on the inside truth that God has established in me now experientially. And so I'm not a victim of circumstances. I can't be just battered around anymore. I have the crown of life. I can rule from the inside. Circumstances don't rule me anymore from the outside. You hear what I'm trying to say? That's a gift worthy, but you can't get it. None of us can get it without going through series of trials and learning to be faithful in them and letting them do their developmental work that they're meant to do. Now, we're going to get into something else here because we're going to see the connection between trials, testing, and, and temptations in a minute. Having stood the test, meaning the test of your trust or faith, you'll receive a crown of life. The Lord has promised to those who love him, 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot, tempt, uh, cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Hold, hold this slide there for a minute. So what happens when we're in trials is it's kind of like the red lights on the dashboard of a car go off inside of us, and we say, man, it just hurts to be me. I just feel crappy all the time. I shouldn't have said crappy probably. Um, <laughs> badly. You know, I just want to get out. I just want something. Man, I just want something to make me feel good again. So we start being tempted. There's always something that can make us feel good quickly, easily, but with a high price tag, usually down the road away. So when we're in trials, we become tempted to find a way to alleviate the immediate discomfort. And that usually involves disobeying God in some way, which comes with a high price tag, not immediately, but eventually. And that's what he's, there's the connection between, for example, the, these followers of Jesus, all they would have had to do when they moved to their next city where they had to flee to, zip their mouth and never say another word about Jesus. And they might have dodged some bullets, you know, that, that thing. Or they could have just said, hey, man, I'm... I'm going to just get myself some pleasure somehow because it just feels, as I said, so bad being me. So that's where the temptation comes in. Now, I'm going to go off trail just a bit because this is important and relevant for some things that are occurring in our society today, all right? I want to take a closer look at something. No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot tempt, or God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. 
we have people today, we have a societal move today where people are literally saying it is God that is tempting them. Let me show you the connection between this statement, God is tempting them, and our native or natural desires. Let's go on to the next part. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their, what does it say? Their own evil desires. Let me show you how this goes down today and show you how relevant it is. We are being told today, and we are having it pushed at us very hardly, sometimes with the fear of consequences, that certain people were literally from birth. They had certain desires. From the time they were two or three years old, they always had these desires. It's the way that God made them. God made me with these desires. So if I'm being tempted, I'm, I'm just being, this is the way God made me. So these desires that I have, they validate that this is who I really am and the kind of lifestyle I should pursue. Does everybody know what I'm talking about without me saying it? We all together say amen if you know what I'm talking about. All right. But this says something very different. It says each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. Oh, but Randy, I've had this desire since I was three years old. It can't be evil. It must be something that God put in me, so I'm just going to be the person God made me to be. How many of you ever watched two- and three-year-olds play? Get a group of them together. Can I see your hands? Are they capable of doing evil to one another? <laughs> Do you have to teach them mine, you know, or to conk another kid on the head with a toy? No, no, no. You have to teach them not to do that. Evil desires, okay? So we're told today that a certain lifestyle is validated because I've had this desire almost since birth. And that makes it okay. And, and then added to the, the, the icing on the cake, they say, how can it be wrong to love somebody? How can, it, how can you tell me it's wrong to just love somebody? Well, I'm not going to tell you it's wrong to love somebody. God doesn't say that. God says we should love everybody. It's not loving everybody. It's how we love them. For example, a husband and wife love one another one way, but that should not be the way that they love the next-door neighbor or the children, right? <laughs> So it's not loving, yeah. It's not the loving, it's how we love that is right or wrong. And this bogus idea about our desires validating our identity, it is just that. And believer in Christ, be bold, be confident, don't be unnecessarily abrasive, but speak the truth in love. Take advantage of these opportunities when our society is going massively insane, when mass psychosis is spreading across the planet. It gives we that have God's grace and truth in our hearts an opportunity to be lights, to be salt, to speak the truth, and to perhaps reach some and bring them out of the insanity that the world seems determined to plunge themselves into. Okay, all right, I drifted. Let me go back. So he says, when, they, when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Relational death, physical death, mental death, emotional death, financial death. There's lots of forms of death that sin brings. Sin, God calls something sin because it's destructive to us and to others. It's not arbitrary. God simply wants us to learn to live the way he himself lives and love the way he himself loves. That's what he calls rightness or righteousness, living in accordance with our design. All right, let's go on. 
We're going to the why of trials, testing, and temptation. We're going to go, go quickly now, and we're going to get into the whys. First of all, in Romans, we have the repeat that it's meant to be developmental for our character. We rejoice in our sufferings. Again, it's that same language. It sounds so experientially contradictory. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. It always means Christ-like character development, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. So once again, we see that the why of trials is they produce a context for the development of character. They are meant to catalyze our spiritual growth. It is the pressure that provides the opportunity for expanded spiritual growth, exponential spiritual growth, we might even call it. Let's go on. 1 Peter chapter 1 Here's where we get into the other aspect of the why of trials, the testing component. These trials will show that your faith, Greek word again, pistis, faith, trust, confidence, reliance, is what? What is the word? Genuine, which then says some people, what they call or think is true trust in Christ, true faith in Christ, is not genuine. Okay, so that, that's the idea. But the trials, they, they bring it to the surface. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 13, he said the the, the sower goes out to sow and some seed was sown in shallow soil. He says the shallow soil sprouts up quickly. He says that, that stands for those who they initially hear the truth about God and life, the kingdom of God, and, and they start responding to it. But then as soon as a trial comes along, they back away. They walk away from God. So he says these trials will show that your faith, your trust is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold, we're going to talk about why. Why does God care so much about our faith, our trust? So when your faith remains strong through many what? Trials, your faith, your loyalty to Christ, your loyalty to the word and will of God, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So here, Peter is pointing the same way as James is, these trials, they, they bring to the surface the truth about our trust or lack thereof in Christ. They, they bring out the, the real condition of our heart. They give us clarity. Now, you might be asking, why? Why does God care so much about our trust? The book of Hebrews speaks directly to this. It says, trusting is being confident in what we hope for, convinced about things we do not see. Catch this, verse 6. And without trusting, it is, what is the word? impossible impossible to be well pleasing to God God is simply saying if we don't trust him there's no way he could ever be pleased with being in a relationship with us why is your trust in Christ or lack thereof my trust in Christ or lack thereof so critically important to God okay here, here's the reality God knows that the only way life can work harmoniously and with the maximum level of joy for everyone everywhere all the time is if everyone lives the way God himself lives and loves the way God himself loves in other words the universe can't function eternally in joy maximum joy unless everyone is obedient to the will and word of God so the question becomes how does God get us to obey him if obedience is necessary for the survival of the species and eternal maximum joy how does he get us to obey him all the time everywhere forevermore well he could use force 
he's almighty he could just robotize us you know so that we just always did what he wanted you know whether we cared or not but that that makes us not human anymore and it's not very satisfying to god and it's not very satisfying to us he could use fear he could say the minute that you disobey me if you ever even think about disobeying me i'm going to lightning bolt you and incinerate you forever but then we would live in fear we might be obedient but we would dread we would dread him man we don't like to be bullied we don't like to be forced or, or kept in fear and that would be unsatisfying to god i mean he doesn't want to have to scare us to get us to do something something that's for our own best so there's only one third way that god can get us to become obedient all the time by choice a way that would delight god and delight us and you know what it is it's faith or trust god reveals himself he says i'm going to show you who i am Yes, I am the almighty creator of the universe and every atom in it, but I'm also the one that loves you so much. I'll go to a cross. I'll let you mock me. I'll let you strip me. I'll let you nail me to a cross. I'll die in front of your very eyes if that's what it takes to prove that my almighty power is always governed by my sacrificial love for you. I'll love you when you're pounding nails in my hands in hopes that it will win your trust because once he wins our trust based on the revelation of his character he has my heart you couldn't peel there's no circumstance that could peel me away from christ it's not because i'm brave i'm not brave it's because i am in love i have been won by a vision of the most beautiful person in the universe he has conquered my heart won my trust and now i joyfully obey him i eagerly obey him and that is exactly why our trust or our faith is so critical to God. He will only rule over a group of people who desire his rule because they authentically trust him more than we trust ourselves. So this is why God says it's impossible, impossible to be pleased. He can't, he can't lead us into the life that he knows we're capable of having unless we trust him regularly enough in our life to obey him um, in every circumstance especially in the times of trial let me add to this quickly first or second corinthians 4 17 it says our exceeding tribulation notice again the normality of trials and tribulation which is momentary and light he means lifelong prepares an exceeding and an eternal weight of glory for us the apostle paul is saying listen you're going to suffer in this life jesus said it you're going to have trials you're going to have tribulations but man it's not that long and what's waiting ahead what god promises is waiting ahead the desires of your heart will all be fulfilled that is the promise of god you will have what you've always dreamt of having at an exponentially higher level than you ever could have it in this life so god says okay you can go through some training and some hardship down here because i know i know what i've got waiting for you on the other end now we need to count on the worthiness of the one that promises us this so that it becomes a governing motivational reality in our everyday lives one more verse that kind of adds to this it says for i consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us now let's wrap up some things here we go trials without trust result in temptation if i'm in a trial i'm in a hard circumstance but i don't authentically trust christ i'll look for options anything that will relieve the pressure anything that will give me a little pleasure a little power a little profit i'll just start becoming a selfish pragmatist i'll just start looking around so if i don't have trust in christ i'm going to look for something to alleviate my pain and i don't much care what it is or what i have to do 
But then add this, trials with trust result in triumphant transformation. Every time you and I are in a trial, we have an extraordinary opportunity for exponential growth. Growth typically is slow. We take in the word of God. We learn his will. We learn his ways. We learn his heart. We serve. We give. We interact with one another. These all promote spiritual growth. But trials are like this intense lab that allows an opportunity for leaps forward in development of our Christ-like character if we seize them. Now, James says, count it all joy when you fall into trials of many kinds. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this, but do you count it all joy when you fall into trials of many kinds? But James says there's a reason that we should count it joy because we know that it allows us this opportunity for tremendous character development. But, but, but here's the problem. James, James is supposing that spiritual growth and character development matters to us. I mean, James is saying, if you know that the trial is going to allow you an exponential leap forward in character growth, you're going to be joyful every time you have a trial. But I'm like, James, you're a pastor, man. Have you seen who I've seen? Have you, have you seen that kind of enthusiasm about spiritual development and growth amongst the people in Jerusalem? Maybe. But here's the crystal question for us is James is assuming you care if you're a follower of Jesus that I care so much about becoming more like Jesus that I would joyfully undergo trials of many kinds but if I don't really care a rip about my own spiritual growth and development if I'm only hoping <laughs> if I'm only hoping somehow to get myself through the pearly gates as one person said to me Randy I don't care if I have to sleep on a park bench as long as I'm in heaven. I don't much care about anything else. If that's our attitude, then James has no message. God has no message for us. If you receive God's message, if you care about Christ-like character development, then you will, I will be able to count it joy the next time we go through a trial of any kind. Our initial reaction will be to gripe and complain and whine, and, but then we'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember, God's giving me yet another opportunity for tremendous growth spiritual growth and spiritual growth matters to me more than anything but what if it doesn't what if we don't care about our spiritual growth what what, what are the evidences how can we rate ourselves i mean do, do we do we diligently study god's word do we own a study bible and we study it diligently for ourselves do do we take advantage of opportunities for group group uh, group Involvement in growth and groups and things of that nature? Do we serve? Do we give? Um, do, we, do we gather with God's people every opportunity we physically can? I mean, you know, we have to look at ourselves realistically and say, do I care about spiritual growth? When I go into my, my, my circumstances daily, do I seek to become a more Christ-like individual? Do I care about spiritual growth? Because if I don't care about spiritual development and maturity, I'm not going to be able to count it all joy the next time I go in to a trial. And it might display I had no real authentic trust in Christ at all. But only perhaps an interest in Christ because I thought that he fit my agenda somehow. He, he was going to fix something I wanted fixed. He was going to give me something. I, I wanted him to fix my family up or, or keep my family together or fix my addiction or 
or you know, I, or give me some advantage in my workplace. You know, I, I had an agenda, but man, if he doesn't fulfill my agenda, I don't really trust him. I was trying to work him. I was trying to use him. There's a lot of people try to work God, try to use him. Not as many that really trust him, and the trials will sift that out. Don't be sifted out by a trial. Christian, let me, let me just share with one last thing. You have got it made. What, what this passage is teaching us is that the worst that life can dish out can be turned into the most constructive developmental experience of your life. The worst that life can dish has meaning. It has purpose. God is with you. He is for you. He will see you through it, and you will come out on the other side with a crown of mastery over life. Thank you. Amen. So let me close with giving this opportunity. Here we go. When you face your next trial, will you choose, notice it's a choice, to view it as a God-given developmental opportunity and thereby transform it to a source of, you tell me, joy. joy. It's our choice, but it's based on our trust. If you're here today, and maybe something has been said that caused you to, to question what you're calling authentic trust or faith in Christ, don't be uncertain before you leave here today. Why not this day? Humble yourself and say, I don't know who the rest of the world is following, but if Jesus could create the universe and if he loves me enough to sacrifice himself on the cross, I don't care who anybody else is following. I'm putting my trust in him and I'm going to follow him fully. I'm going to follow him freely and I'm going to follow him forever. If you've never made that decision, I urge you to humble yourself and consider Put your trust in Christ. Become his follower today. That is what it means to be a Christian. He promises the forgiveness of all of our sins, the gift of everlasting life, and the, the working of his spirit to help us become the Christ-like version of ourselves that God always intended us to become. And then for the rest of us, Christian, you're going to have to use your mind now. The next time you have a trial, you're not going to feel like counting it joy, right? Can we agree on that? It's not going to be our gut reaction. We're going to probably, oh, gee. But then we're going to stop and we're going to say, wait a minute. This is a God-given developmental opportunity. I'm going to stay rock solid, faithful, obedient to the Lord that loves me and created me for good purposes, good purposes that go right into eternity. All right, all right, Christian, let's pray, let's pray. Father, we know that we have heard you speak. And we welcome the truth of your holy word. It gives us hope. It gives us strength. It gives us courage. It gives us enthusiasm. It gives us peace in a world that is indeed full of trouble. Help each of us here to see clearly, make wise decisions, adjust our lives accordingly. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.